Oh man, what great truths are in this scripture this morning. Um, if you are new here or you're here for the baby dedication, uh, we're, we're glad that you're here. Let me also catch you up though because we are in the book of John and we're in like right smack dab in the middle of it. And uh, we're in the end of John chapter 11 as we just read. <clears throat> but let me just kind of recap for us the purpose of the book of John. The first thing that we need to know is why was this book written? We say this every week. We want to remind all of us what John wrote about the main purpose of his own book. And it says this in John chapter 20, verse 31. It says, this thing, these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The whole thing was written. There was a lot of things that were written uh, about Jesus, and there were a lot of more things that he did uh, while on the earth. But these things in this book were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and that as you believe that, you will have life. For those of you that have been here, you're like, hey, I got that. But today we're gonna be challenged in that a little bit because what we learned last week is that Jesus let one of his best friends die. Let him. Like didn't just allow it, but waited purposefully in one village while Lazarus's family came to him and then said, hey, Lazarus is sick and you love him a lot, but he's sick and we need you to come. We need you to come and heal him. And Jesus says, all right, well, cool. I'm gonna sit here for another two or three days. Somehow in God's logic, that made sense for him. And the reason why is he says it twice, actually, in that passage. Verse 15 of John 11 says this. This is why he's doing this. Actually, it's 14. Jesus said to them plainly, to the disciples, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, for your sake, for the disciples' sake, I'm glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. So let us Go down to him. He would reiterate this now, not just to the disciples, but to all those people that would be looking on to what's going on in verse 42. He says this. He's praying to his father. He says, I know that you have heard me, and I know you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus let his friend die, let him go into the grave for four days so that his disciples would believe and so that anybody with an earshot could hear that Jesus has the power to raise dead people to life and that they would believe that he is the son of God, the one that was sent from heaven to save his people. And when he did that, of course, we know he, he, has, he has a way of entering into a room and you either love Jesus or you want to kill him. There's no hatred that doesn't eventually lead to murder, at least not for the Sanhedrin. And so what we find out is that some people believed Jesus. They started to follow Jesus and we would all, all go, yes, praise God. And as he gathered those crowds, the Sanhedrin, the supreme court of the Jewish people, came together and they were like, all right, he's getting too much power. And they were afraid. What were they afraid of? They were afraid that all the people would start to follow Jesus. Why would they follow him? Why were they so afraid? See, they say this in, uh, what is it, verse 47? What are we to do? 
So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, the Sanhedrin, and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Jesus' greatest enemies didn't deny his miracles. They are, he is performing many signs. His power is on display. We've tried to say it was demonic. We've tried to say he came from Satan. We've tried to say he was a blasphemer. But it is obvious now that his power is on display. And if he keeps resurrecting people, we're going to be in big trouble here. See, when he turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana in John 2, that was cute. But now that he's in John 11 and he's straight up resurrecting people out of graves that have been there for four days, now he's a danger and he's a threat. What, what is so threatening about resurrection? What is so threatening about that power? See, the only threat that that power holds goes to those who can't control it. And the Sanhedrin, all of a sudden, someone had come onto the playing field that they probably somehow recognized, but they didn't invite him onto the field, and so they want him to go. It's a fascinating situation. Jesus' words split the room. Some believe, and others want to kill him because of miracles, because of life, because of the good that he's doing to bless people. And so they come up with this crazy conclusion in verse 48. Read it with me. Look at what the Sanhedrin says. This man performs many signs, verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Interesting that all of a sudden they would prefer a nation underneath Roman rule. Which if you know anything about Roman rule, the climate of the day was this. This is an insane uh, line of thought when you think about it because some 30 plus years earlier when Jesus was born and the wise men were going to worship him as the king, the wise king, what happens? King Herod hears of this and goes, oh, there's another king that was born? There's a baby boy? Okay. Well, one way to fix that is just kill all the baby boys. And so King Herod ordered the infanticide of all baby boys in the region where Jesus was. I want you to think about that. We dedicate babies. That there's a, a place right now probably where someone is trying to take advantage of little ones because they see them as a threat. So when we see this and this here today, we truly celebrate God's sovereignty and placing them into your care here in this place and in this time because it hasn't always been that way. That was the climate, is that some 30 years earlier, King Herod had ordered the infanticide of all baby boys to try and kill Jesus. They've been trying to kill him from the get-go. The Romans would collect high and unjustifiable taxes, and they would do so through other Jewish people. They would hire Jewish men that usually didn't have a lot to do with their lives, and they would put them as tax collectors amongst the people to collect those taxes. We know some of them, one of them being named of Matthew and Zacchaeus. Changes their life, and they all of a sudden are like, dude, we've cheated a lot of people. We know that because that was, that was what they did. And so the Jewish people would see those tax collectors who were also Jewish and call them traitors and push them out because they were aligned with Rome. Roman rule was harsh, brutal, unpredictable, 
and disrespectful to all Jewish customs. And now the Sanhedrin is saying, I would rather live under that than to see Jesus get more popularity and more power and more pull in the region. It's a crazy thought, isn't it? It's a crazy thought. See, they were enslaved by their fear of loss. And I would say this, just a little, little pharisaical algebra here for us, is that slavery equals the fear of loss when we see that the, the, the fear of loss is greater than whatever we gain in faith. Is that up on the screen behind me? Okay, perfect. Slavery is when we fear losing something way more than we value whatever we gain in faith. I would rather stay under Roman rule, even though I know it's not good for me or my ancestors or my faith, rather than whatever can be gained in following Jesus. See, that was where they were. And I would say this, that if they had actually thought that Jesus could be the Messiah, they would see that Rome didn't stand a chance. The Son of God would come in Daniel 7. This is a prophecy about Jesus and his kingdom. Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14 would say this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion. This is now to Jesus. To Jesus was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. See, if Jesus is truly the Son of Man, truly the Messiah, then Rome doesn't stand a chance. And they would rather submit themselves to slavery, to that which they know, rather than to risk it and follow Jesus. It's easy for us to go, man, that sounds really insane. It doesn't really make a lot of sense until we realize that we do the same thing. See, God's people have always preferred slavery to what we know rather than to trust Jesus for what he knows. This happens in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 14. You see the, 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 the Israelites walking out of Egypt, 400 plus years of slavery. Crazy time in the nation of Israel. And they walk out of that place through the Red Sea that God just parted, right? That's a crazy thing. No one else has seen that. You've seen the Red Sea parted? I can't part the water in my bathtub, much less an entire sea. I have a son named Moses. He can't do it either. He, like, God parts the Red Sea, and they walk through it on dry land. When they get to dry land, what happens? God lets the sea close over the Egyptian army and kills them all. They get across the sea in chapter 14 of Exodus. In chapter 16, that'd be two chapters later, this is what they say. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you, Moses, you, Aaron, you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Two chapters in, very short time after they see the, one of the greatest miracles this world has ever known. 
all of a sudden they start grumbling against God's leaders because they're not providing enough food for them. They would rather slavery, but with full bellies, than freedom with a little pain. I wonder if some of us are in that same boat. Because I think that we sometimes have the same issue, that we submit to the slavery of what we know, we submit to sin, for instance, when we know that Jesus has something far greater for us. We just don't know it yet. We have to trust him to go find it. We have to follow him to go see it and taste it. It's a great challenge for us. And I would say this, though, for all of us, though the place from where you are leaving is all you have ever known, whether it be sin, whether it be comfort, whether it be security, whether it be finding identity and success, whatever it is that God's calling you out of, though the place from where you are leaving is all you've ever known, it is time to pack up, to get going, and to never look back. That place of slavery and fear into lesser things without Jesus isn't home anymore. We need to hear this over and over again. And I know that it is troublesome in how to do it. And so let me put a principle before you. When you all were in uh, premarital counseling, I'm sure that everybody went through good premarital counseling here. When you all were in premarital counseling, one of the first things that, that you should know or should start to learn about is this principle of leaving and cleaving, right? That you leave your father and mother and you cleave or cling to your husband or wife. Anybody, is this ringing a bell? Okay, eight of you that have had premarital, good. All right, so leave your father and mother and you cling to your new wife or your new husband. Leave, cleave. That's the same thing, it's a, it's a great picture, not just in marriage, but it's a great picture of leaving the things that we knew, leaving our old system, our old way of life, and clinging to something that you want you just don't know it yet. And so you've got to cling and truly be, it's this word of gluing yourself to something new. Something you, you, you're pledging to follow after, but you don't really know what you're doing. Every person that's ever been engaged goes, yeah, yeah, no, I love her. No, no, I love him. You don't love, you don't. You don't know yet. It's not until like three weeks after the wedding that you go, okay, I really love her. Or I really love him. You learn that love over time. The same thing is the case with Jesus, that you leave what you know and you follow him because of what he knows. See, I would say this, that um, it's not just sin that we need to leave. That's kind of an easy thing to preach about, that once we found some satisfaction and some release in the pressures, uh, from the pressures of life and sinful things, of temporary pleasures, of things that would have uh, some kind of fleeting joy, and yet they did provide some relief for us. That's, that's one thing to talk about how, how really Jesus will not let you be satisfied in those things any longer. He loves you far too much for you to be satisfied in those lesser things. Now that you belong to him, you can run to those things and they will end up causing so much shame and guilt because they're not for you. And instead, Jesus taking that shame and that guilt upon himself has set you free to live life that is truly life. You're talking about exiting the slavery of sin and into the sonship or the daughtership of King Jesus is one thing. There's also this other more subtle thing. And that is to leave your old ways and then somehow be okay with wandering in the desert. 
This wandering in the desert that I would see in our church and in many churches is this, this wandering into the desert of creating a new law that you can live by. A new law of morality, a new law uh, of making life work, of, of being well-respected in community, and yet not clinging to Jesus. That would be the same as leaving this nation of Egypt and then wandering in the desert for your whole life and being like, it's not so bad here. Like, it's just not that bad. Without the promise and without the experience of the land flowing with milk and honey. The land that flows with milk and honey for us as believers today is this life that is dependent and directed by the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit indwells us and now he is the river that, that flows within us. That's what John 7 talks about. That we would be a people that would not create a new law of wandering in the desert but instead truly continue to follow that voice that might be off in a distance until we find our ultimate satisfaction in Jesus. So this is how this looks. That's kind of like big thoughts, but this is how this looks for us. I think this is one of the biggest hangups we have in our church that many of us have been in church for decades, but the problem is, is that we have relied too much on people like me, on the clergy and pastors and priests to tell you what to do. And so instead of entrusting you and challenging you to go back to Jesus and ask Jesus what to do, you're coming to us and we go, man, I like that. Let me be of service and of help to you. And there's good intentions in that. But it pales in comparison to challenging you and entrusting you to the Spirit's care. It's good to ask for advice. It's even better to ask the Holy Spirit what you're supposed to do. So the Bible says that we should ask for good counsel. I'm not going against that. That's a beautiful thing. But it pales in comparison. If the spirit, the great counselor, Jesus calls him the other counselor. We're gonna, we're gonna discover that in John 14. The other counselor, if we're not discovering what the other counselor has to say to us along the way as well. See, that's what it means to leave and cleave, to, 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 to let go of that which we know and to follow and trust Jesus for what he knows. See, that's what's going on in this first part, but then the narrative continues on, right? So Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and it doesn't end. They are now ready to take this to the next level. So they're scheming, they're wondering what to do in verse 47, verse 48, and now in verse 49, we start to find out that God is using even the most unjust circumstances for our good. Verse 49, one of them, one of the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, who was the high priest, so he's like the man in Jewish culture. I mean, there was huge ceremonies to, to, to put the high priest in charge. I mean, he is at the top of the totem pole. He was high priest that year, and he said to them, you know nothing at all. So much for good counsel, Caiaphas walks in and says, you guys know nothing. Verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So their proposal is this. In order for us to survive, we need to kill Jesus. But what they doesn't know is that he's prophesying. 
See, John continues on and he gives some commentary for us in verse 52. John would say this, he did not say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied. These are the words of God that somehow are being worked through Caiaphas to say this prophecy, that it's better. It is better for you that one man should die for the whole survival of the people. That's prophecy of the kind of life and the kind of death that Jesus would die. So their proposal is, hey, let's kill the one dude, and then when we kill him, this rebellion that's about to break out won't happen, and the nation will survive. And what God intended in that was, when you kill this one, it will save the many. It's a beautiful picture, but it's not just that. It's not just that. See, the Bible says, Caiaphas even said this, God said it through Caiaphas, one of God's enemies, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Better than what? Not just better than self-preservation, but also better than the system of the law. And that's what John would help add for us. It's better than safety, the security, and the comfort of what generations have come to know through the Mosaic law. When you do bad, you bring these types of sacrifices and God will forgive you. That's basically was, I mean, summing up all of the law, that was it. Summing up all of the, the, the sacrificial system was when you sin, you gather up these prescribed sacrifices, bring them to the temple, and God will forgive you. Or at least he'll cover your sin. And yet all of a sudden, what we would read later on in the New Testament, Hebrews 10, 4, it says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is better that Jesus would die not bulls and goats, continuing on. Let's read this, uh, this commentary that John gives us one more time because in it we're gonna find the heart of God. Look at this. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who scattered abroad. And as a result, John would say in 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They ratcheted it up a bit. They went from wanting to arrest him to now not just arrest him, but eventually kill him, which they would need the Romans to be able to do. So I wanna say this, that John helps us understand this prophecy that Caiaphas gave, and in it, we will discover the heart of God. Okay, just like any good heart, if we're made in the image of God, I'm just gonna go ahead and say that God has these four chambers in his heart because it fits my sermon, if nothing else. So there's four chambers in God's heart. Two, eight, two ventricles, and what were the other ones? Atria, it's been a long time since I've looked at biology. Right, so these four chambers of God's heart, this is what he says in this prophecy. So hang tight with me, because I'm gonna tell you this right now. There is probably nothing greater than these four things that we can cling on to. The first one is this, the heart of the matter. The heart of Christianity is substitution. Jesus' life for your life. Don't ever forget the simplicity of the gospel that he came to die for you as a substitute for you. That's what it says, that he would die for the nation. 
The heart of Christianity is substitution. We deserve God's wrath, and Jesus drank that cup so that we might receive mercy. We deserve eternal separation, and yet Jesus was forsaken so that we might be deserve to be left alone in the wilderness, insistent upon our own way and in our own stubbornness. But that stubbornness did not deter Jesus from leaving the 99 to come and find the one. We deserve to have deaf ears, and yet Jesus has bored out for us new spiritual hearing devices. We deserve to remain blind beggars, and Jesus has restored our sight so that we might see him. We deserve to be in a religious system of working for God's approval and being okay with that. But this, with his cry, it is finished. Jesus paid it all. We deserve being an orphan, but our Father in heaven put a spirit of adoption in our hearts by which we cry out, Abba, Dad, Father. We deserve the never-ending pursuit of trying again and again to find our satisfaction for our souls in the empty pursuits of success, security, and other fleeting pleasures, and yet the Spirit was sent to fill us, to give us rest, give us comfort, to counsel us for the days ahead. And I'm just getting started. What we deserve, Jesus took on our behalf, and what we have in Christ is our greatest treasure. Substitution is at the heart of everything we believe, not addition. Not you plus him equals a good life. No, you're awful. I'm awful, and Jesus is awesome. And God sees us through his awesome son, Jesus, and says, man, I love you because of what he did. Substitution. Chamber two, family. Family. He says this in in verse 52, that he would gather into one the children of God, no longer calling us sheep, now children. Now sons and daughters, and through faith we've been given birthrights into a kingdom where our dad is the king and our big bro is Jesus. And he went off to a far land and purchased us and brought us back into the kingdom where our dad reigns and rules over all things. And we look at our big bro and we go, thank you, thank you. Let us sit at your table, enjoy the feast that you've prepared and enjoy fellowship with you forever. We're part of that kind of family. We're children of God. No longer, as Jesus said to the the Pharisees, children of the devil. Oh man, what great beauty in that. If I haven't ruffled feathers yet, it's coming. Chamber three. Chamber one, substitution. Chamber two, family. Chamber three, unity with diversity. God's mission into gathering one. Look at what it says in 52. I'm waiting for him to put it on the screen if it's not already there. And not for this nation only, not just for the Jews only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That includes you and me. If you don't have Jewish lineage in you, that would include you. So thank God Jesus was thinking about us, not just in the book of John, but before the foundation of the world. That's why he blessed Abraham, so that he would be a blessing to the nations, and the way that he is a blessing to the nation was through his eventual descendant, Jesus. Unity within diversity. This echoes John 10, verse 16, 
It says, I have other, this is Jesus talking, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock with one shepherd. God's heart for his people is to be diverse and yet unified. Diversity. God wants diversity of every kind in his family. I want you to think about these ways that he wants us to become unified and yet diverse. And then I'm gonna point out a couple of things in our world that just war against this. So he wants every nation, every race, every continent, every country. He wants all kinds of gifts. He wants educators, attorneys, accountants, oil change techs, artists, and everyone in between. He wants all people from all economies, rich, middle class, and the poorest of the poor in his kingdom. He wants all ages, seniors, Middle class or middle-aged, adolescents, toddlers, infants. He wants genders. I have to say all genders in this day and age, not both. I have to say all genders, men and women and those, my, my friends, and those who have been captivated by a lie. I don't say that without knowing what it means those that have been captivated by our society's new definition that we can change what God has designed, that's, that's a life of misery. That, that we, would, we would rebel against God's created order. We would, he, wants, he wants all genders, though, in his family. All of us. Nations, gifts, economy, ages, gender. We are far from this. The prince of this world wants to split us apart at the very seams which Jesus came to mend. Just look at our country. The last few years, we've had race war against race war against race war. We've had Black Lives Matter. We've had Blue Lives Matter. We've had All Lives Matter. And all that does is divide and conquer. If it's not race wars, it's generational wars that children are targeted by most large corporations in America through every marketing scheme that you can imagine. They're coming. Or perhaps the one that we had this week. More division in our country than maybe ever, arguably. I say that, at least in the last 7,500 years, and what are they dividing? They're dividing not just truth and lie, but men against women. It's interesting, the things that Jesus came to mend and bring together, we would find every reason to tear apart. Unity within diversity. Men, women, children, older, younger, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, wherever, from wherever, whatever you look like, Whatever it is, that's the kingdom. That's the family of God that we're called to be in. Not people that look like us, think like us, feel like us, and like the same things as us. That's just idolatry. The family of God is meant to be diverse and yet unified. I wonder what that would look like for us here at the Grove. These are the hearts of God that he's always been thinking about the nations of bringing all kinds of people to the table because when we get to heaven, when we get to eternity, we'll sit around a table at the kingdom where there's a wedding feast and there will be people there that you're like, for real, you? 
and they will look at you and go, for real, you? That none of us stand on our own merit. None of us are white enough or black enough or Hispanic enough or rich enough or poor enough or male enough or female enough to enter into the kingdom of God. But that God has come for us. And now, the fourth chamber of God's heart. God's love bursting forth in election. If you don't know what that means, let me break it down. That God, before time began, would so choose you to bring you into his family, not based upon your own merits, but because of his love. His love bursting forth in election. Look at what we have read so far in the book of John. If you are wondering where this is coming from, it's because it comes from verse 52. Not for this nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. They're all abroad. They're gonna be brought near to the Father's heart. But how is he calling them children yet? If they are not yet regenerated, if they are not yet brought into the fold of God, and yet he sees them into the future and says, no, they're, they're my kids and they need to be brought near. I don't want to win an argument. I'm just going to tell you that right now. I'm not interested in winning an argument with this. I just want to show you the scriptures. Because I have never found more joy. I've never found more assurance and I've never found more gratitude than realizing how much God truly has done to secure me in his family. I didn't get here by my own will. I don't stay here by my own will. Instead, it is the powerful hand of God. Do you remember a couple weeks ago when I used that silly illustration of spundele? That no one can snatch me out of the Father's hand, including me. I don't have that power. Only the power of God can hold me that closely, that securely. How is that true? Let me read some scripture for you. This is like, I don't know, one, two, three, four, five, six pieces of scripture, all right? Write them down. There's gonna come up lightning round style. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You can't do it. The Father has to draw us to Jesus. John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. You ain't got nothing to help. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. How does Jesus know that? Because he knows who will be in and who will be out. He knows his power, his ability. John 10 Verse three, the sheep hear his voice. He calls, this is the good shepherd, the sheep hear the shepherd's voice. He calls his, his own sheep by name. He knows them personally. And what happens? And so they, they might listen. No, and he leads them out and they follow. John 15, 16, we're getting there. You did not choose me, he says to his disciples, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear fruit and that your fruit should last or abide. I've only read scripture to this point. I'll read two more. Ephesians 1, verse four and five. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I don't know how many years ago that was, but before that. 
in love, his love bursting forth in election of his predestination of us for adoption. There's a purpose for it. Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to his glorious grace, not our own works. 1 Peter 2 and 9. 9 and 10, excuse me. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We don't possess him, he possesses us. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him. He's the one who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. You didn't stumble into the light. God called you out of the darkness to bring you into the light. Once you were not a people, but now, my friends, you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you're a passive recipient of mercy. You've received it. He didn't just do enough to offer you life. He did everything necessary to secure it for you, in spite of you, in spite of me. Everything. I mean, we started this off by saying, God will go to extreme measures to make sure that you believe. He will even let his friend go to the grave for four days so that others will believe. He will even send his son, Jesus, to the grave for three days so that you might believe. And all this, this orchestrated plan by God so that we might be brought into this family of God. Of unity and yet diversity, where we have been substituted. We deserve to be on the cross and God put his son there. And the result of all this, the result of this explanation is John eleven fifty four. This is what John says. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly amongst the Jews, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. His devotion to his father's will of substitution and inclusion will ultimately cost him his life. His submission to his father's will of substitution and inclusion will ultimately cost Jesus his life. As he follows his father, it will ultimately lead to his death. What happens when you follow your father? As we end today, how about you? Does the way that you devote yourself to your Father's will cost you anything? Will you, will, does it cost you to be uncomfortable? Do you, do you make sacrifices? Or, or, or perhaps you need to look back and go, man, I've, I've, what sacrifices have I made in the last week, in the last month, in the last year because I am choosing to follow Jesus? What can you look back on and point to something that you don't have because of your devotion to Jesus, or perhaps you can't look back. When you do, you don't see anything. Perhaps when you look back, you find yourself amongst the Sanhedrin, clinging to that which can not keep you safe, but that which you know. And perhaps it's time to take a step of obedience, of love, of trust, into Jesus, whether you are a believer or a non-believer to this point. Perhaps it's time to, to let go of that which you clung to and attach yourself who has done, to the one who has done everything necessary for your salvation. To substitute his son for you, to bring you into a family where there's unity around diversity because he has been working that out for you for a really long time. That's how much he has loved you. That's how much he has known your name. 
and cared for you. Wherever you are, I can make one guarantee. Jesus is better than whatever you are seeking for satisfaction, than whatever you are seeking or clinging on to to keep you safe. Jesus is better. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. In the midst of busyness and babies and guests, would your spirit speak? We don't want to be people that just come and sing and hear. We want to be people that are remembering the precious blood of Jesus that has bought us, purchased us, brought us into the fold of God. Lord, you are the author and perfecter of our faith. And so the Bible says we fix our eyes on you, not on all this other stuff that goes on in our world, whether identified as red or blue in our country these days, or whether we identify ourselves or believe this person or that person, but whether or not we put our trust in our faith and the one who says he is the truth. So may we follow you. May we fix our eyes on you. May we trust the author and perfecter of our faith, both today and forevermore. And may we sing like we mean it. We love you and we're grateful. In Christ's name we pray.